If you would, uh, take your Bibles and, and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 31 through 39 this morning. The chapter that we looked at in the Cottage Bible Study this week focused on uh, the intercession of Christ and uh, in particular focused on Hebrews 7 and then he mentioned Romans 8. So we're looking at that this morning in, our, uh, in worship. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word, Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Pay careful attention, this is God's Word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated and let's pray and ask the Lord's help. <laughs> Father, your word is precious like a jewel. It is sweet like the drippings of the honeycomb. And it gives life. Lord, would you work your word into our hearts this morning as we consider what Paul has written in this glorious chapter. Pray that you would apply it to our hearts, open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things in this, your word. Help us to receive your word in faith and with love, to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. Help us to see Jesus to love him, to trust him, and to be made more like him. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, I'm sure many of you are like me over the, these last few weeks, been listening intently or watching the news uh, very carefully as, as uh, crises have been unfolding in, in the Ukraine. As I was listening to the news recently about this crisis, it, it was uh, clear uh, how many who live there are fearful, how the situation there is, feels very chaotic and uncertain. Uh, just recently I heard a story of a man who was a, a South African but living in the Ukraine, and he was trying to get out, as, as were so many others. He spent all of his cash that he had to get to the Polish border, and on the way there was told that if they moved and if they took their car and tried to get to the Polish border on the western end of the Ukraine, that it would take 70 to 80 hours just to get there because of 
all of the congestion, people trying to get out. But if they walked, it might take 14 to 15 hours to walk to the border. And so they decided that they had a better chance if they walked. So they walked 14 to 15 hours, got to the border uh, at Poland, and, and once again were greeted with chaos. And when they got there, they were told that they would have to wait another 45 days uh, before they could get across the border. So he took a car back to the city of Lviv, uh, in order to find a route to the Hungarian border to try to get uh, out of the country a different way. By the time he got there, he found that the bus had already left that had uh, gone to the Hungarian border. He met a taxi driver who agreed to race after the bus to try to catch up with it and perhaps finally get him transport to Budapest, which he was finally able to do. As I was listening to all of this, was thinking about where our hope is, where do we find certainty in the midst of life's dangers, in the midst of life's trials, whether it be trying to get out of a war-torn country or simply facing the afflictions that we deal with on a daily basis, perhaps some more than others. In the midst of crisis and danger, where do we find security? Romans 8 is a chapter in the Bible that answers that question with Uh, a crystal clear description of the security that we have in Jesus Christ. Reminded me of of the old gospel song, I guess it's not really that old, about Jesus holding on to us. It says, I'm not holding on to Jesus, he's holding on to me. Romans 8 is a chapter that gives confidence, that gives certainty, that gives assurance that because of the faithful sovereign work of Christ and his grace, that we will make it all the way to the end because Christ himself is holding on to us, even now interceding on our behalf at the Father's right hand. So I want to look this morning at at two main points. First, just the the context of Romans 8, and then secondly, to look at the work of the Father and the work of the Son in giving us security in Christ. So let's look first at the context of Romans 8. Uh, Is there any weak link in the chain of salvation? It's part of the question Romans 8 is asking. Romans 8 is an especially important chapter place in the Bible. One writer says that if, if the scriptures are a ring, then the letter to the Romans is like the precious gem in the ring, and Romans chapter 8 is like the brilliant sparkling point of the gem. It's a beautiful chapter and a high point in all of Scripture. Another writer says that these verses in particular that we're looking at are the Christian's triumph song. The Christian's triumph song. The resounding note of this whole chapter is one of consolation for us through the hardships of life. Romans 8 begins with this wonderful declaration that for those who are in Christ Jesus who have faith in him, who are united to him by faith. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Sin has been completely dealt with in Christ. In his death, he has taken away the condemnation that we deserve for our sin by being condemned in our place as our representative. There's no condemnation for those in Christ in this life or in the life to come. 
And the chapter ends with this wonderful declaration that unpacks this idea of no condemnation by saying that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And in between those bookends of Romans 8, Paul is laying out this argument for our security, the security of being in Christ through faith, along the way answering objections, answering challenges that we might experience, we might even just think of, answering challenges to that security. From beginning to end, the Lord sovereignly and graciously saves us and keeps us in Christ. And in our passage this morning, Paul brings this triumph song, this chorus of consolation, this poetic argument to its climax as he aims to convince us and comfort us that in Christ we are fully embraced by the unrelenting, unfailing, and never stopping love of the Father. Or in other words, Christians, those who have trusted in Christ, have both a present and an eternal security in Christ because of the Father's gracious gift and the Son's ongoing work of intercession. Notice the way Paul begins. He begins with a question in verse 31. And really, there's one, he asks five questions uh, in this passage, but really it's just one central question, which is kind of summed up in verse 31. After outlining God's work of redemption from beginning to end in verses 29 through 30 in verse 31, he says, what then shall we say to these things? What should our response be to the grace of God in Jesus Christ? If God is for us, who can be against us? Or in verse 32, God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? The third question in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Fourth question, verse 34, um, who is the one who condemns? And the fifth question in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Five questions, but all of them basically asking this one central question. Is there anything that can sever us from the love of God in Christ? Is there anything outside of you that can threaten your security in Christ? Is there anything inside of you that can threaten your security in Christ? And the overwhelming answer again and again and again is no. That if you are in Christ, you have perfect and eternal security. Tim Keller says that the purpose of these questions is to almost beat us out of our disbelief that we are saved totally by grace and are therefore completely safe to face life without fear. What does Paul give us to build up our confidence to assure us, to comfort us, to console us, and to remind us that we have security in Christ. He gives us two, two answers, one dealing with the work of the Father and the other dealing with the work of the Son. So let's, let's look at the way Paul answers this with regard to the love of the Father, the gracious love of the Father. He asks this question, if God is for us, who is against us? It's a rhetorical question. Uh, you're meant to hear the question and answer it by saying, no one, no one can be against us if the Father is for us. And he 
unpacks this answer in verse 32. And notice um, three things that he highlights here. First, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son. How can we have security in Christ? We can have security in Christ because the father did not spare the son. Sparing um, has to do with justice, has to do with the infliction of suffering. Um, Spare the rod, spoil the child. Sparing the rod means you don't inflict the punishment. You, You spare the child from discipline. You deal with the consequences of that later. But the idea is that you're somehow withholding some justice. You're withholding some punishment. You're withholding some form of suffering where somebody is spared from something difficult, something hard, something that would bring some amount of pain. And yet here Paul says that the father did not spare his own son. What's he mean by that? What does he have in view here? He has in view the cross and, and all that happened at the cross, both what we can see as we read the description and the things that we can't see but we know happened at the cross. Jesus was not spared. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, he, he prayed with great agony, uh, even sweating so much or in such intense agony that he began to sweat drops of blood. As he anticipated the terror and the horror of what was coming to him at the cross. Jesus knew, more than his disciples, that he was facing not just the cruelty of a Roman crucifixion, as bad as that was, but was facing the full weight of divine wrath for the sins of the world, that they would be placed upon him. And as, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, as, as Jesus became sin for us, he bore in his body the physical punishment and cruelty of the cross and in his soul, the very wrath of God for our sins. The full weight of divine justice and wrath for sin poured out on Jesus with no mitigation. Nothing was spared at the cross. John Murray says that the Father did not withhold or lighten one whit of the full toll of judgment executed upon his own well-beloved and only begotten Son, Judgment was dispensed upon the sun in its unrelieved intensity. All of the wrath of God for your sin was put on Jesus. He was not spared any of it. And if all of it was put on Christ in your place, then there remains none for you because Jesus was not spared. But notice, instead of being spared, he was delivered over for us all. He became sin for us. He became, as Paul says in Galatians, a curse for us. In some way that's perhaps mysterious to our understanding, Jesus was fully delivered over by the Father to the powers of darkness and the hands of wicked men that in his death and in his resurrection, he might overcome them and conquer them through his own victory. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, 
not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. If the Father did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You see the argument from the, from the greater to the lesser there. The, he's saying the Father did all of this for his own well-beloved Son, the one whom he had loved from, from all eternity and, and enjoyed endless, unbroken, perfect fellowship and communion. Before the world and time began, the Father loved the Son. And yet at a certain point in space and time, the Father delivered over the Son on the cross with unmitigated intensity, pouring out His wrath, His judgment for your sin, delivering Him up for us. And if He's done that, He won't let you go. He he will hold you fast and will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. This is the Father's love for you. Notice as well, not just this emphasis on the Father's work, but the emphasis on Christ's work as our Redeemer. Christ's work as our Redeemer. Paul highlights four kind of crucial, pivotal elements in the work of Christ for us that guarantee our present and our eternal security in the love of God. He looks at two things that happened in the past and two things that happen that are happening rather right now in the present. Notice in verse 34, he asks, uh, who is the one who condemns? After noting that God is the one who justifies. Then he says, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, or more than that, rather who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who also interceded for us. All of these things are kind of a, 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 a complex of events that help us understand the work of Jesus on our behalf. In the past, Christ died on the cross, bearing God's wrath for our sin, giving himself over for us out of love, being both priest and sacrifice, the one who offers and the one who is offered as a spotless lamb for the sins of the people. He died, and yet he didn't remain dead. He, he rose again from the dead in glorious triumph over sin, over death, and over the devil. And in his resurrection, we have the certainty that sins are forgiven because Christ conquered death for us. He died. He was raised in the past. But what is he doing now? Paul highlights two things. He is at the right hand of God, and he also intercedes for us. He's at the right hand of God. It's a metaphor for power, for dominion, for Jesus' rule as our king. The right hand is the the place of authority, the place of, of power, the place of honor. Jesus died and rose again and then ascended up into heaven and has sat down at the right hand of God and therefore rules over all of his creation. And he intercedes there for us. He brings us into the Father's presence, and he keeps us there. Now, what do we mean when we talk about Christ's intercession? We do not mean, intercession usually involves, as you know, kind of two parties and one who stands in between, uh, reconciling them, bringing them together, fixing broken bonds of relationship. Jesus functions that way. He's our interceder. He stands, uh, intercessor rather. He stands in between us and the Father as our mediator. But that does not mean that Jesus is somehow twisting the arm of a reluctant father 
somehow pleading with a father who is unwilling to forgive, unwilling to welcome sinners into his presence. The father gave the son. He did not spare him. He delivered him over for love of his people whom he would redeem through Jesus. He's not twisting his father's arm. Rather, he and the father are in perfect agreement. And Jesus' very presence before God is his intercession for us because as our representative, Jesus carries us with himself. He became man for us and for our salvation. He represents us perfectly before the Father's throne. Your name, if you are in Christ, your name is on the Son's heart and engraved upon his hands. By union with Christ where Jesus is, there you are also. You belong in the Father's presence. You receive the Father's love and favor and are brought into his grace because Jesus represents you and carries you with him before the Father's throne. Jesus is our interceder. All that he accomplished in his atonement at Calvary, he now perpetually, ongoing, continually presents before the Father, and it is ongoing, perpetually accepted in heaven. Jesus himself is the bond of our present and eternal security. And as long as he is before the Father, uh, we have our presence before the Father in a way that cannot be broken. So what is Jesus doing? He's praying. Jesus is praying. He's praying for you. He's praying for his church. He's praying for all those who do not yet know him, but will in time come to trust in him and to know him through his disciples. Jesus is praying for you all the time. Go read John 17 to get an idea of the types of things that perhaps Jesus is praying for for you. When your words fail, when, when your life is too heavy for you to offer words to God, entreating him, pleading with him for mercy, you have a merciful and faithful high priest at the right hand of God praying for you with all wisdom, all knowledge, and all power. Jesus is praying for you. You know, many of us have had the privilege of parents and grandparents and, and other adult Christians in our lives who were committed to praying for us. And you knew they were faithful. You knew they prayed for you every day. Maybe they even kept a little journal where they wrote your name and wrote down things that they were praying for. You knew you had somebody here praying for you. And many of, many of those folks that you could probably think of have gone on to be with the Lord. And perhaps we feel that we've lost somebody who prayed for us faithfully in this life. As much of a blessing as that is, we have a greater blessing in Jesus praying for us all the time before the, the Father's throne perfectly and in all wisdom. He is praying for us. By his presence, he is bringing our names before the Father's love and heart. We are in Jesus, and therefore we are in the Father's love. We don't naturally, naturally belong uh, to heaven. <laughs> we don't naturally have a right to be in the Father's presence, welcomed and accepted. But because we are in Jesus, that's where we belong. 
Uh, several years ago, my, my brother Les was uh, playing in a band um, and was, was touring around the southeast, and it, this was one of these kind of uh, hippie jam bands where you go and you kind of do this number to the, to the music for hours on end. Um, not, not my scene anymore, and, and certainly not my father's scene, but because my dad loves my brother, he was, they, they came to Columbia to play in a concert, and so my dad, we all went to the concert, and my dad got a backstage pass. He had all access to the backstage of this hippie jam band concert with all manner of things going on in the audience that we won't talk about here. But my dad did not look like he belonged at this concert. You know, middle-aged guy, combs his hair. That was already making him out of place uh, at the concert. He was dressed as a normal human being. All of these things, you can kind of look at him and think, oh, he sticks out like a sore thumb in a place like this. What in the world is he doing here? He does not belong. But because of his connection to my brother, he had a relationship that gave him all access there. And even though he didn't look like it, he belonged and, and he desired to be there. Our, our sin has disqualified us in ourselves from belonging to the colony of heaven, from being citizens of the kingdom of God. But you have an elder brother in Jesus Christ whose very presence before the Father guarantees your acceptance and your welcome guarantees the fact that you belong there and cannot be removed ever from the Father's love because Christ is there for you, interceding by his very presence. What about dangers? What about life's afflictions? Shall these things remove us from the Father's love, the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. We might think, you hear that list, and, and we, we've enjoyed enough privileges, we might think, oh, these are all hypotheticals, and maybe these won't, won't happen. And then Paul quotes from Psalm 44, which is a way of telling us, oh, these things happen to God's people. We're not immune from danger. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's gross. Why would he say such a thing? Well, it's in the Bible. He's quoting from the Bible. Part of what Paul is helping us to understand is that as believers, we will face possibly the worst of dangers, even being considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That is part of our history as the people of God, and it may be part of our future. Who knows? Certainly the part is certainly part of the present for many Christians in lots of places in the world, and I hope, I hope you know that and pray for them. And yet Paul says even these dangers cannot separate us from the love of God because Christ makes intercession for us. What about our sin? What about when I know that I should do one thing and I do the other, knowingly? Or, or what about when I, I know I should not do the one thing again, and I, I don't want to, and I try not to, and then I end up doing it anyway when I, I know better? What if I constantly struggle to overcome patterns of sin and 
and weaknesses in my own life, and I just keep repeating the same challenging problems and sins in my own heart. What about that? Will, will Jesus at some point say to me, enough is enough. You've had plenty of time. You have plenty of knowledge. You have all the resources that you need. Sorry. Will Jesus himself sever us from his love in the face of ongoing sin? Whether it's habitual, unrelenting, purposeful, high-handed, or not. And the answer from this passage is no. All the Father's wrath has been placed on Jesus, and all of the righteousness of the Son covers you, and you are beloved in the sight of God. If you are in Christ, none of that can pull you away from the Father's love. If you're not in Christ then nothing you do on your own, in your own strength, can bring you into the Father's love. It all hinges upon Christ. And if you are in him, there is a security that cannot be broken, cannot be threatened by dangers in this life outside of you or sin within you. How does Christ make intercession for us? By his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven. And the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, which may be true, and yet he answers them, and procuring for them quiet of conscience, not conscience, notwithstanding your daily failings, giving you access with boldness to the throne of grace and full acceptance of your person and your services, the things you do. All of that Jesus secures for us by his intercession. The accusations of sin come against you, and Jesus says, those are mine. I dealt with them. Feelings of shame and guilt arise up from within you, and Jesus says, that's mine. I've taken it from you. The internal condemning judge and even Satan himself comes against you to bring your sins up again and again and again, and Christ says, those are mine. I have dealt with them. I have died. I have been raised. I am at the right hand of the Father. I am interceding for you. There is nothing that can separate you from my love. What should we do with all of this? Uh, three things briefly. Number one, see all of life through the lens of faith in Christ. I think that's what Romans 8 is urging us to do. Look at your sin. Look at your guilt. Look at affliction. Look at suffering. Look at all the things that you experience, but don't look at them without Jesus. View it all through what Christ has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, his current intercession for you. See all of life through faith in Christ. Anchor your heart and your mind in Jesus. Number two, in your sin, let conviction drive you to Christ and not away. Let it drive you to Jesus because he has died for you and he intercedes for you. Don't run away from Christ when you're struggling with sin. Run to him and he will help you. And number three, in all our affliction, know that Christ holds us fast. Some of you may have seen, I don't know, these videos were going around on the, uh, the internet recently, uh, videos of Ukrainian Christians as 
as the Russian forces were beginning to attack, um, you know, and assault the, the country there, Ukrainian Christians were gathered together uh, singing, I don't know if they were singing in Russian or Ukrainian, but singing in their own language, He will hold me fast. Can you imagine you know, the, the sound of artillery firing, the sound of, of bombs dropping, the sound of affliction coming your way very close to you, and knowing what that was, would bring with it, gathering together and singing, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. For my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Would you pray with me?